0: Welcome to Life at the Academy, a midshipman-produced podcast that examines how the culture, traditions, and daily life at Annapolis have evolved over time. I'm midshipman Nels Warren Amy. In our effort to establish a collection of oral histories dedicated to the history of the Naval Academy, the group of us working on the project have found our interviews with professors particularly interesting. There are several reasons for this, but the reason that we have continued to turn to is the fact that professors have a long view of midshipman culture. In the brigade, there's a lot of turnover, of course, because we only spend four years at the academy as midshipmen, but there's also considerable turnover in the officer leadership. That's different on the faculty side of things, because faculty members have the ability to see how the Naval Academy evolves over time, over their entire careers. We found that we've been able to tap into the institutional memory of this place through the experiences of faculty members. And so we've asked another faculty member to join us for this episode. Professor Regine Goodman was a professor of economics at the Naval Academy. She offers yet another unique perspective for this project because of her administrative experience at the Academy. She was the first director of teaching and learning And so she has had a tremendous impact on the way that professors approach their role as teachers here at the academy and the way that they're evaluated and recognized for their work. In addition to that, she was instrumental in the creation of the Quantitative Economics Honors Major. And so that's another experience of hers that that we asked her about. And also she has the experience of being the first woman to serve As a civilian faculty member here at the Naval Academy, so that's another unique perspective that she brings to our project. And so for all of these reasons, we were really looking forward to our conversation with Dr. Goodman, and as you'll hear, it was a fascinating discussion. And so without any further ado, I'll introduce Dr. Goodman to you and then turn to the interview. Regine B. Goodman was a professor of economics and the director of teaching and learning at the U.S. Naval Academy. She earned her Ph.D. at Washington University in 1976. She has had more than 30 years of teaching and administrative experience at the U.S. Naval Academy. She was the first director of teaching and learning and focused the program to bring a wide range of teaching and learning workshops to the Naval Academy faculty. In addition to faculty workshops and seminars, Dr. Goodman initiated the use of teaching portfolios at the Academy and created the Instructional Development Support Center a centralized faculty support facility intended to introduce emerging educational technologies and to help faculty integrate appropriate technology into the teaching, learning and assessment process. As we commented at the end of the interview, we had a couple of technical difficulties during the conversation, but we can't thank Dr. Goodman enough for her graciousness in allowing us to work through the technical challenges that we faced. Professor Goodman, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: I'm pleased to be here.
0: Let's begin with a introductory question about what you chose to study for an undergrad. Why did you choose to study economics?
1: Okay, I, I was actually a math major as an undergraduate and one course sort of a physics major and took a lot of economics and a lot of history. Um, so that's sort of my background. Um, I enjoyed the economics. Obviously, math dovetails very nicely with it. Um, I wasn't interested in going on in math. Uh, it just nothing was interesting. And I did like the economics and history and you know the causes of all the wars, I think, are all economic. So uh, it was not a, a, a big jump to go to graduate school in economics. And, and I went and I loved it, and stayed, <laughs> and completed it.
2: Stemming from um, your your studies in economics, why did you choose to teach at the academy, and what was your first impression of the academy?
1: Okay. I chose to teach at the academy when I was in the market interviewing for jobs. I interviewed at the University of Maryland and at Johns Hopkins. Um, my undergraduate education was very much interacting with professors and, you know, being able to drop by their office and ask questions, that sort of thing. And that's the type of environment I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in a quality undergraduate school that the institution was interested in the students' learning. Um, And um, Maryland and Johns Hopkins don't fit that bill. Um, They're much more interested in people doing research and bringing research dollars into the institution. Now the academy has grown to not require it, but be very positive, reinforcing for people bringing research in and research dollars into the academy. But that was not where they were in the '70s.
0: So, professor, in terms of your background, can you bring us up to speed between your undergrad and when you became a professor at the academy? What did you do for a PhD and a master's education?
1: Okay. Um, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and that school doesn't have a master's-only pathway. You go as a Ph.D. student, a doctoral student, and along the way you take uh, a set of exams. The first set is called preliminary exams, and that's after about a year or a year and a half in graduate school. And it's the fundamentals. It's the micro, the macro, the basic. Uh, statistics. Then you are specialized in different fields. Usually you have two fields. Um, Mine was uh, econometrics and monetary theory and policy. And then you take another set of prelims, probably in the middle of your third year. And if you do well on all those little paths, you, you get to go and try to write a dissertation. If you don't do well in the first set of exams, they hand you a master's and say, see you around. You know, they they don't have you keep going because you just don't have the fundamentals.
0: So you mentioned some of the differences between the Naval Academy and other civilian institutions, including research. Right. Um, but how else is the Academy different? How is teaching at the Academy different than teaching at a civilian institution?
1: I don't think there are great differences. Um I think one of the big differences is how much pull there is on your time to do other things and also the requirement that you do other things. In other words, if you were only interested in academics, you would be very unhappy at at the Naval Academy, whereas at other institutions, you could easily just focus on academics and not worry about playing sports and, and uh, you know, the whole military learning Learning how to be an officer, uh, you just don't have that. So midshipmen have to be very focused in their studying. They can't take great time off and go to the bar and things like that, or just play around. Um, and so faculty have to be aware of what the load is, and and uh, modify. Over what they might do as, in a civilian institution,
0: so, Professor, does that mean that professors expect less of midshipmen in terms of their classes or compared to the way that they would teach? A oh, class I wouldn't at a say that. I
1: think they just recognize that when they make an assignment, it has to be focused and not busy work. Okay, it, you, it has to be aimed at a particular principle or a concept that they want you to learn, and and not here, do these 15 problems out of, you know, chapter three at the back or whatever.
2: <laughs> right. You know. Many of our listeners are probably not aware, but you were the first female faculty member at the United States Naval Academy.
1: I was the first female civilian faculty member, okay? okay? There was an officer that started the semester before I did.
2: Ah, uh, beat you to the chase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you
1: know. Well, but, uh
2: nevertheless, could you tell us about, Um, How this impacted your experience as a professor, as well as any challenges that it possibly provided?
1: Um, I think that um, because I had been a math and physics major, which is not highly populated by females, (laughs) or certainly at that time it it wasn't. And so I had been going to classes and and labs and everything like that with a, a fairly imbalance in terms of, of gender. Um, so when I came here, you know, it, it wasn't terribly uh different, um, and I certainly didn't have any difficulty working with my male colleagues and, and on the academic side. Um, I think I didn't appreciate until women were going to be coming here in 76. The, you know, I mean, midshipmen had gone to high school when they'd had female teachers all along the way and stuff like that. So my walking into the classroom and being up at the blackboard was not different for them. But when women were going to be coming in 76, um, I happened to be teaching uh, one of my classes on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule. Back at that time, they had seven days a week, classes. The ones on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday only went until noontime. Um, But, you know, you quickly recognize that Saturday was not going to be a high learning point. (laughs) And so frequently, I would, you know, pose a a topic for discussion. And uh, I think that one Saturday, I just said, "Uh, what would you like to talk about? Well, you know, the fireworks went off. And and every conceivable argument that the midshipmen could make about either why they should or why women shouldn't or why women should—I mean, there, it was reasonably balanced. It wasn't all, you know. Um, and that's when I realized that, you know, just because I'd been standing up at the front of the room, you know, for several years at that point, that it it hadn't started to adjust attitudes um an attitudes adjusted very slowly over time you know every attitude that that uh you can imagine was expressed in that classroom which is fine i mean that that's the whole point of having a discussion is having different views and and having people argue about the view and what's right and what's wrong and so it it was fu- a great class but i didn't realize how um how how diverse the views were, but how strong the views were on both sides.
0: Professor, I think it's easy to forget or it's hard for us to put ourselves back in that time. So could you tell us what were some of the different mindsets, the different perspectives on women coming to the academy?
1: Oh, well, you had um, the idea that women were not capable of going through the program and being successful. You know, I mean, I had one student, Actually said to me, "Do you think they are as good as I am?" Um, and I replied, "Yes, I did." <laughs> right. Um, he he was not a particularly stellar student, so I, <laughs> you know, it probably hurt him more than than it might have.
0: Professor, did any of the students, or the women from the first classes of women to graduate from the academy, did any of them reach out to you in a mentor role or for support?
1: It, I mean, it, there were so few of them. And um, they were mostly, um, they, they were not in economics initially to any great extent. And so my, ability, my interaction or potential interaction was not there. And it was not until later when we had uh, a larger economics major and hence a lot more women
2: that I had, those, I had conversations and we'd talk over issues and they'd drop by. Could you tell us about initiating the use of teaching portfolios at the academy?
1: Sure. Um, let me sort of backtrack. Um, as a as a senior faculty member, I was all, I also was the chair of the department for five years, and um, in in working with faculty and listening to the deans talk, you know, every Monday morning, um, that. Uh, you know, the quality of teaching was not what they had expected, what the deans had expected. And so the guy who was chair of the physics department, he and I would sort of do a tag team, you know, uh, when the dean would start going on asking, like, why, why couldn't they teach better and all this sort of stuff. And our viewpoint was, where do you put your money? You put it into faculty research. You don't have any program to try to enhance faculty teaching or anything like that. So two months after I stopped being chair, the dean called me in and said, I'm going to create this new position, director of teaching and learning, and I want you to apply. And I said, now, I shouldn't be the one applying, you should get the physics, because Physics as a discipline was a lot further along with hands-on learning by students. I mean, this was national. This wasn't just the academy. But the academy was tuned into it. So I said, he would be much better. I mean, he's much more qualified, you know, knows something. And so <clears throat> it being a dean who had some control over me... um when he said, well, you at least have to apply. I said, okay, I'll apply, you know, figuring that I could screw up that interview <laughs> enough, <laughs> not to be selected. Um, so I was selected as the director of teaching and learning. And and then I had to do a whole bunch of catching up. I mean, figuring out what was going on in the rest of the world with respect to teaching and learning. Um, and so I um, went to several conferences dealing with teaching and learning on a a broad scale, for people like me, uh, you know, directors of teaching and learning and, and that sort of thing, and um, found a couple of people who could come in and do presentations, um, including a group of people from UVA who uh, did a workshop for faculty on creating uh, teaching portfolios. It was a week long. They would come and stay for a week. Um, and do presentations and work with faculty to develop them. The the reason I think they've gotten so much acceptability here is the fact that the only alternative are student opinion forms. And that's not necessarily a very good evaluation of how well someone is teaching. And so the teaching portfolio allows faculty to put together what they're trying that's new and the evidence that supports that it was positive or maybe it was negative, so you stopped doing that and you tried something else, but gave a fuller description of their teaching than just what student opinion forms do.
0: What are teaching portfolios, Professor? <laughs>
1: oh, okay. Um, you you start off and you, you write um, five to eight pages on what you want to accomplish in your teaching, what, what you think are important um, aspects that you would like. And then you start doing, you, you teach to those, or you have been, and then you start collecting data on how well such and such a technique worked. In other words, one of the things is professors, as you know, love to lecture. And they'll walk out of a 55-minute lecture and think, ah, aced it. This was fantastic. But if you take three-by-five cards and hand one to each student and say, what are the top three points that the professor was trying to make? (laughs) And maybe they come up with one or two. They might not be the points that the professor thought he or she was making. So you know, collect data on how well you're teaching by what your students are learning and not and it's not grades it's it's much it's much more um response to techniques that help them learn and they'll point it and then midshipmen will point that out sometimes on student opinion forms, sometimes not
0: so were you advocating for less lecturing or more of a blended approach or just simply taking? some form of collection of data of the way that you're teaching so that there's an evaluative or a feedback loop?
1: Basically, it was getting faculty to do more active learning, getting their students to do more active learning. In other words, don't, you know, spoon feeding them and, and giving them lists and, you know, PowerPoint presentations and putting them up on the web and stuff isn't necessarily going to work because different students have different learning. You know, some learn by reading. I've talked to several math professors who don't understand why these students cannot read the math book. I know why. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but, you know, it's that. It's trying alternative methods to get the students to learn because that is our job. You know, as I call it, enticing the students to learn. (laughs) and And, as a Director of faculty, you know teaching and learning, I was enticing faculty to change wh- how they taught. so what
0: what means did you have at your disposal to change the way faculty approached? Was it encouraging them to do so, or did you hold seminars to try to get them to change their ways? Or?
1: i I offered workshops, usually in the period um, between finals and commissioning work week. I would offer various workshops. I mean, most of the time I was bringing experts in because with faculty, the distance that the person has to come equals their level of expertise. So, you know, bringing somebody from California, you know, uh, they're, they're big experts. Whereas if you get somebody from Baltimore, it's not that far away. So can't possibly be an expert. <laughs> <laughs> right. And were
0: faculty receptive to this?
1: Yes, I I was actually um, quite pleased with how faculty came to these workshops and and the repeaters. In other words, came to one workshop one year and came to a different workshop the following year.
0: I find it interesting now that you're talking about this and then you mentioned before how – one of the things that attracted you to this institution was the fact that it was a teaching environment. And on the outside looking in, people might not expect that at a military academy. They might expect that the, the professor stands at the front of the room and lectures and says to the midshipmen, you do this X, Y, and Z, and then don't ask any questions or don't challenge me. But it's really not the way that this place works, which is a bit counterintuitive. Or would you agree with that? Or, well,
1: or I, think it's, I think it's actually morphed over time. Uh, certainly... <laughs> When I first got here, uh, the division director um, came in and talked to each department. And one of the things that he said was, when I walked down the hallway past, you know, sections of the same course, I want to hear the same word coming out the door from every classroom. <laughs> and and I think that, that was sort of a, a, an original, I mean, the initial... Um, experience that they were trying to inculcate, and then of course it it changed because faculty changed, they realized that it doesn't work, you know, just re- reeling things off and um, and the student body changed.
0: So did the faculty drive that change?
1: I think the faculty drove that change. Yes, yes.
0: well, that would certainly fit in with the arguments that dr little has made about faculty ferment and the changing <laughs> of the majors program
1: yes yeah yeah because that that came you know um while he was in, in his junior years as a professor right.
2: <clears throat> professor have you noticed any significant changes in the united states naval academy's culture uh,
1: uh, how are you defining culture what's your definition of culture well, you're asking me: Has there been a change? And I'll say there's been a change in uh, the abilities of midshipmen. I mean, we didn't have programmable; they didn't have programmable calculators when I first came. I mean, computers didn't come until the '80s. So, the skill set has just really changed. You know, they're just as bright, just as motivated, all this good stuff. But their skill set has changed. And so the culture changes with the skill set.
0: So Professor, does that mean there's a different demographic from which the Naval Academy is pulling to admit people into the Academy? A different demographic as in they're pulling people who are academically gifted rather than leadership gifted, so to speak?
1: Oh no. I think they I think it it is still the whole person multiple as the admissions people have it. They're looking at all sorts of things. And um, I think even the athletic department would think that people are coming in better prepared to play the sport because all this stuff about you know physical activity and strength training and all that has really developed over the last...
0: So that technology almost is yes, what has allowed right. people to develop their
2: skill sets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Going off the question about how you see the the culture of the academy changed, right. do you feel like the standards that the brigade holds itself to have evolved?
1: When you're talking about the standards that the brigade holds, are we talking about honor system and stuff like that?
2: Yeah. I, that th- – I mean, the, you could go into like plea beer, like how rigid their plea beer is, um, the rule following – uh, uniform cleanliness, and any, any of the weird kind of like military ish <laughs> rules. <laughs>
0: That's a perfect description. <laughs>
1: um. I think that um the, the the culture, certainly with respect to plebe summer, has changed dramatically um over the time that I was here. Um you know, the the yelling at an individual was very accepted initially. You just just blast them, and that's okay. In other words, it's the tearing down and uh, aspect of it. Um, but later on, midshipmen were taught and learned different leadership skills. And I remember once I was walking across a, the parking lot, probably going to a meeting or something, and there was a, you know, a group of plebes, and I knew the upper class that was leading them, and it was yelling. And I just walked by and I said, would your mother be pleased with what you're doing? And just kept right on going. (laughs) Because, yeah, you know, that's not the way you get people to do things and to try to do them well, (laughs) just by yelling at them
0: so As did he change his ways do you know
1: well i i he came in to talk to me about it <laughs> um and i think yes i think he did
2: uh, this was over plebe summer or just during the plebe year
1: well this was uh, this was an occasion of during the plebe summer okay you know when we tend to march them around by groups mm. doing things
2: um. My mom's told me the exact same thing over FaceTime. I'm a detailer this summer, Oh, okay. so I'm like, "Mom, like you don't understand. Like I, they need like part of. The, I have to yell at them a little bit." She's like, "No, you don't. <laughs> you,
1: you do, but within bounds. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's not. It's not s- simply the yelling. It's what you're saying as you're yelling."
0: What moments as a professor are you proudest of? Mm.
1: Um, I I think. There, there, are sort of two, two areas that that I'm proud of what the institution did, and that was developing the honors program, but then also developing the original quantitative economics major, which was a balance between econ and math. Um, both of those created very challenging programs, and and hence, you know. And I think we did it in the right way because we did some research at other institutions, what kind of programs that they had and what had been successful and what had not. Um, And I think we really developed a very good quality honors program.
0: Were you involved in the creation of both of those programs? Yes. How are you involved?
1: Um, Well, I was involved in terms of structuring what the econ honors major would look like. I worked with one of my colleagues and we did that and um then um interesting the agreement for the quantitative economics major was actually brokered by a visiting professor between the economics and the math department okay but you know he was visiting and he didn't stick around for implementation <laughs> <laughs> and so um you know there there as with any program it uh, There had to be adjustments along the way, and uh, we did. But working with the math department as well as uh, with the econ.
0: I'm going to backtrack to an answer that you gave earlier when you talked about the lessons that you tried to impart to midshipmen. Right. And you said that you implied in the beginning of your answer that you imparted economic lessons or ec- lessons about economics. Uh, what were some of those major key takeaways about economics that you wanted midshipmen, either who majored in economics or who didn't, oh. to take away as they entered the fleet?
1: Oh, I I really wanted them to recognize the impact of demand and supply. In the sense that if you're talking about some good, and um, you know the CDC comes out and says, oh, you know, if you eat corn. All this good stuff will happen to you health-wise, and so there's a big switch in demand for corn. Well, that's going to affect the price. So, so recognize these these uh, statements that different groups make have an impact on what the demand and the supply is, and and that that drives your life. What pr- prices of things drive your life because you have an income and. Um, Starting out in the Navy, you have a very fixed income (laughs) that everybody has and everybody knows what you have, sort of thing. Um, And so uh, it it was important for them to learn that and then to learn how policy changed things, whether it was monetary policy or fiscal policy, you know, how taxes and government expenditure could change what went on in the economy, how the amount of how much the amount of money uh, was in the economy impacted it. So, recognizing what change, you know, how you change the economy, and who has the power. Um, I thought was very important for them to know. At one point, I actually taught, and I did it as a one-credit course because I wanted people who were interested in it. I taught a personal investment course. And went then into all the you know instruments and and uh you know why you would want to buy stock and what you would look at what you you know bonds all all this sort of stuff. And one of the the, the major project in the course was for them to sit down and look at what they were going to earn pay and tell me how they were going to allocate that. Food rent, partying, however they wanted to do it. Vastly different responses from the 20 people in the class. I mean, some people thought they were going to spend $200 on food for a month. Other people thought they could get by with 25. I said, neither of these is going to work. (laughs) But it was an interesting experiment because it forced them to think about it and... uh, it was interesting in terms of what they spent on and what they thought, because it was a second semester course, so the firsties had all picked where they were going to be, you know, after graduation as, as entrance and second lieutenants. So they had an idea of where they were going to be, you know, in San Diego, or were they going to be someplace less expensive.
2: Going back to your thoughts on the brigade culture and how it's how it's changed um, mm-hmm. over your time teaching here, what aspect of it would you like to see preserved into the future future classes that are coming?
1: Well, uh, obviously, given my discussion of plebe summer and plebe year, um, I I would like that to continue that they that midshipmen learn some good leadership skills to be able to get people motivated to do what whatever one wants them. I mean, plebe summer is, and plebe year and actually your whole four years here, you're learning skills that you need when you go out into the Navy or the Marine Corps. And so to to teach it in a way that they the lessons are absorbed is important as opposed to, well, I'll do it this way because Pete wants me to do it this way, but next year when I've got somebody else, I'm going to do it totally differently. Uh, You know, that's not engaging with why it's that way and and embedding it in your own approach.
0: I'm interested to hear your views on academy culture as a whole. The definition that we've kicked around doing this project is that culture is like organizational personality. So... If you had to put into, if you had to describe what the organizational personality of the Naval Academy is, either on the faculty side or the midshipman side, how would you describe that?
1: The organizational? Hmm. Well, I, th- I think for faculty, what you have are very dedicated people to student learning, And to their discipline and keeping up with their discipline, uh, some of the people will push the boundaries, okay, um, in doing research. Um, Other people, as we say, will fill in behind the boundaries, you know. Well, you move the boundary there, but you didn't really analyze all that which goes behind that. And so you have people who are committed to their disciplines, committed to student learning, and um, as far as I ever observed, are very highly uh, motivated, great integrity uh, individuals.
0: Well, Dr. Goodman, thank you very much for your time today. We enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> thank you for bearing with us through all of our technical difficulties.
1: No problem at all. I'm totally used to it. Thank you.
0: This has been our interview with Dr. Goodman about the way in which she shaped the Naval Academy administration and about her teaching experiences here at the Naval Academy. We thank Dr. Goodman for spending her time with us and for sharing her perspective and experience. This has been the midshipman-produced podcast, Life at the Academy, recording from the Naval Academy's Sampson Hall in Annapolis, Maryland. On behalf of the USNA History Department and our midshipman hosts and producers, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time.